You have tuned into the Voice of Medicine, the medical podcast filled with remarkable stories, first-hand experience, important research, and valuable life lessons. Open your mind, relax, and enjoy. Hi, everybody. We are back with the voice of medicine. Today, with a guest from the Netherlands. Um, he's a sociologist. Um, he specialized in the field of drug control and, uh, well, to be more precise, drug quality control. He works at uh, a specialized institute in the Netherlands, but also did a project in Asia. And he will definitely tell us more about um, a number of topics regarding uh, drugs, drugs use, drug quality. And also, interestingly, he will tell us about the market um, that uh, was enabled by the rise of Internet. So the Internet drug market. And I also assume connected to that um, selling and buying drugs in the so-called dark net or deep net. I'm very much looking forward to what he has to say. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dan Van Gove. Hi, Dan. Welcome to my podcast. Yes, thank you very much, Mikhail. So, Dan, you are um, a sociologist and you work for a great amount of years now in the field of monitoring drugs, right? And this is happening in the Netherlands. Yes. And... I would like to know, first of all, how did you get from studying sociology ending up basically in drug quality, uh, um, drug quality field? That's oh, an interesting question. Um, what I did was when I finished uh, sociology, at that time, we talk about, I think, the early 90s or the mid 90s or so, we had in the Netherlands this uh, mandatory um, military service that we had to undertake as a as a male until the age of 25 or something like that in that scope uh, at that time and in the Netherlands <clears throat> you could choose between doing actually military service or doing something similar but then uh, for the greater good so so like social work social work or community service yeah. something like that so I chose for the latter and then I ended up with drug treatment uh, system uh, service in The Hague in the Netherlands and uh, so I did that for 18 months or so and then I enjoyed it quite quite a bit but thought it should, well that I could do a bit more in a different area and then I sort, sort of started to work in different fields uh, in the drug field uh, and basically ended up uh, at the Tremors Institute in the Netherlands uh, around 12, no more, for 15 years ago already doing uh, monitoring and before monitoring drug markets and before I was working actually in the in the treatment field and uh, doing harm reduction and uh, being an outreach worker and and so on and so forth and f now for well many years I'm uh, I'm monitoring the market in drugs wow um you know I would say a layperson um, hearing what you you know hearing you speaking coming from the Netherlands they would probably think well I mean of course the Netherlands is a very a drug-friendly country. So I don't know. Would you say it's truth? And if so, what is the what is the like the special thing about Netherlands that you guys you know um, have? I would say more 
uh, how shall we call it, uh, that you're more tolerant towards, you know, certain substances? Um, I think, you know, it, it was the case in the, you know, in, in the hippie times, so in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, maybe still now, if you compare it to, for instance, countries like Russia and so on, um, but there has been a shift in this uh, in this uh, thinking about drugs and so on. But I'll come to that later. I think that initially, when the problems with heroin uh, started to uh, to become apparent in the, in the streets, what we did was to focus on the user as a person seeking help or treatment. So when the heroin epidemic started, we thought it would be best to uh, to set up proper care and treatment for users of those drugs, especially heroin, rather than to incarcerate them. So, and this is probably, it's maybe a cultural issue that we believe in the freedom of, uh, you know, personal freedom of persons to, to be engaged in things that they like to do as long as they don't cause any harm to others. So drug use, the issue of drug use, I think we have had a, yeah, well, maybe different um, attitude if you compare it to other countries in the European Union and abroad. Um, but yeah, um, it worked for the Netherlands and it still works for the Netherlands. So based on the idea that, uh, well, drug use is a personal choice and you should not interfere with that as long as you don't cause any harm to others, to the society or to your neighbors and so on. Um, and then it's just, you know, it's up to you to do that or not, uh, but you should be informed. Best way to use to, to live a healthy life, probably not use drugs, but it's basically up to you. So it's different from us, you know, uh, from other countries. And I think it's, it's, it's gone back to the fact that you have this, uh, we have this strong belief in that every individual has their own freedom to, well, to fill in their lives, you know, whether they do that and uh, uh, by not causing any harms to others. So. I think still that is uh, the, the situation, but now we have seen over the last years, the last five years, maybe a bit more, that uh, more and more people turn towards a more conservative approach. They they are fed up with uh, all these liberal views and these people, you know, they're a bit fed up with that, and now they are focusing more on on, on something else that they you know it's, it's it's becoming a bit more strict in general um if you compare that with 20 30 years ago okay so you guys basically had a different point of view you said well people who want to take drugs will take drugs anyways or they will they will get their hands on the the substances anyway so how about we rather uh, make sure that the framework in which drugs are being taken is safer so you decided rather than you know stopping all individuals let's let's uh, take a look at uh, what's out there and you know give people a i would say more informed background so they know what they're doing if they want to do it and maybe second of all um you know look at the quality of what they are taking that's yeah that's true but we started off with the fact that we believe that uh, you know the best way to live a healthy life is not to use drugs but yeah, know, of course. We know that that many people do so, at least in, mm. in a specific part of the life period of their life, they will uh, be engaged in some drug use, uh, and then we believe that the best way to do that is in, in, in a safe way. So we should uh, set up things like drug checking, which I'm in, uh, involved, and and other things, in order to minimize the risk for the user themselves, but also for their direct environment and for society as a whole. This is the basic principle. Still of our policy is to to do it that way we know 
we are we are it's it's you know it's, we know that people some people will use drugs anyway and we believe strongly uh, until now that the best way to to accompany this is to uh, well to, to to make all those services available so that people when they take drugs they do that in the safest uh, possible way and this is still a very strong belief in the Netherlands. So how does this work exactly? I mean, do people just come with, I don't know, a little bag of certain substance or a, a bag of little pills to you, to the Institute, and they ask you, hey, I bought this from a guy somewhere or I bought it on the Internet. Could you test this for me? Is this how you basically ensure the quality? Uh, no. Um, it's a bit of a story, but we started off... Uh, already back in the in the 80s and even already in the 60s and 70s that we started off uh, more large scale in the 80s uh, on festivals uh, and parties but uh, uh, in, in the early 90s we formed this network of drug checking services throughout the country and it still remains until today uh, it's very protocolized and basically it means that what people do is they uh, do not come to our institute in Utrecht. We coordinate the drug checking, but they have to go to their local drug checking services because we have over 30 uh, services where people can go to. Uh, you can go there at specific times of the week, and it's anonymous. It's usually free of charge, and you just come in and you said, "Well, uh, I bought this sample of uh, this ketamine on the darknet or in the streets, and I'm a bit suspicious of uh, of the content." least have it analyzed so that I can use in the most safe way, if at all. And so they do that, and then uh, usually a week later they get the results because we do a full-blown chemical analysis with all these substances. It's around 15,000 last year, so it's really a lot, uh, and it's on a weekly basis, it's structured. And then after a week, uh, people uh, can call, they get a unique number for the sample, and they can call and just ask uh, for, the, for the result. The main thing is actually, well, well, one of the main things is not just drug checking itself, but it's also the fact that while doing this work, we communicate with those people submitting samples and we all kinds of preventive messages. We talk about their drug use and we talk about their maybe unique treatment or some care. And if they agree, then we can easily refer them to some treatment. So for us, the, the actual talk with these recreational users is very important. And... Um, this is what also this is what often is forgotten when we talk about drug checking that it's a very um, well I don't know it's a very basic thing you check drugs and give results thank you bye bye no it's not like that at all so um, but we do it in this way for many years and it seems to be quite effective in our country um, many people take use this service also I have to notice that many people do not use this service but it's up to them but luckily many people they 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 are what we call still want to use drugs but they do it they want to do it in the best possible way in the safest way and so they turn to us in order to know the exact content of the substance and quite often we say when the results give give uh, way to that we say well probably you should not take this because you know alongside with ketamine it also contains some other uh, uh, suspicious substances and uh, it's probably best thing not to take it so our advice is, uh, is not to, to use this specific sample and some self-reports suggest, well, research, including self-reports, suggest that people tend to follow up on our advices. So it's not strong evidence, but at least it's something. And um, this is how we work. Mm -hmm. So 
first of all, I wanna I wanna highlight the fact that you are at the upfront. So if somebody um, comes with uh, with the wish to check the drugs that they are about to take, and um, you might actually through talking to these people see maybe early or potential signs of you know early addictions or or perhaps any kind of diff- other states. And they talk to you, and then you can say, "Well, I mean, maybe, maybe this is not the right way. Maybe there is a there is a there is a need in you to go. I don't know to some kind of other specialist, uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever. Right? Exactly. I think this is very important for people to understand that you're not just a quality check service, but um, through that work, you get the possibility to um, help people. Um, you know, maybe get the first impulse to do something about uh, their problems if they have problems. That's right. We- we're the first. Uh, we're the first persons they t- often talk to because they're recreational users. They have never been in contact with the drug, you know, professional drug users, uh, uh, drug professionals, and so you also have to know. I didn't mention it, uh, so far, but you also have to know that these drug checking services throughout the country, these locations, are embedded within care and treatment uh, mm-hmm. uh, services for drug users. So you have treatment there, uh, but you also have a drug prevention unit there, and usually within the drug prevention unit, we have trained staff there that do the actual drug checking. So for them, it's very easy to, because they know where to turn to uh, for help, so it's very easy for them to to refer a person submitting a sample to uh, the most effective way of treatment. So this is often forgotten, but it's really important. It doesn't happen very often, but it still it happens. And... Uh, it's good because you these recreational users, they have no, otherwise they would not be seen at drug treatment facilities because it's a huge stigma for them to enter in, in the first place. And in this way, you uh, enable treatment for them who, who need treatment. Yeah, you're, you're making it easier for them, so to say. It's uh, that that's, that's really a cool thing. So um, let's say somebody comes to you, um, checks um, on the quality of whatever, you know, they just bought, doesn't matter if it was on the street or if it was um, in the internet, and you guys find out that it's not um, 100% what it's supposed to be, or maybe there is even some something extremely harmful inside that thing. What would be, basically, what are the next steps? It um, depends a bit on the substance. recent example is sold through a Telegram uh, group. You know, Telegram is a social medium where a lot of things happening among which drug uh, drug sales. So one guy bought there uh, in his one specific group. He bought heroin. Uh, sorry, he bought ketamine. But our results turned out that it was actually heroin, which is a completely different substance and really risky situation. So now we're in the middle of identifying the, the one who sold the sample uh, and, and the, the vendor actually on the Telegram in order to inform him that you know whatever he's doing, he should stop with this. Um, and we also have this link with uh, our uh, health inspectorate. So whenever we feel the need to do so, we inform them and then they have to take upon action upon the specific vendor. It's already five years ago, almost six. Uh, we do warning campaigns um, at different levels, but the highest level is a, what we call a red alert. It's a nationwide mass media uh, campaign against a very specific, uh, targeting a very specific uh, substance. We got through our results uh, uh, a, a tablet sold as ecstasy containing uh, no MDMA at all, but a huge amount of uh, 
very lethal uh, and toxic substance called PMMA, paramethoxymethamphetamine, uh, in a huge quantity, absolutely lethal, lethal dosage in that uh, specific tablet, which had the shape and the form of uh, Superman. It was pink, so it was a pink Superman tablet. We identified that through our services, and then uh, we uh, contacted the ministry, and uh, we have this this um, core group red alert. So we informed them about one of these results, this result specifically, and we asked them what to do. And then immediately became clear that it was right before the Christmas season that we said, well, we sh this is very risky. We should actually uh, have a full-blown red alert. This is what we did. So we went uh, on TV, on radio, and the media, every media, we, we communicated the message Whatever you take during Christmas, please don't take this substance because it's absolutely lethal. So I was with my face on, on national TV, on national uh, news stations, you know, with the logo of a specific tablet uh, in the back. And uh, as a result, uh, this specific tablet became completely insellable. Nobody wants to use a drug, you know, that could potentially uh, um, kill you. So it was off the market immediately in our country. However, um, I remember in that year that Christmas was, you know, Thursday and Friday of the next week. Before uh, Christmas, uh, there were four reports of uh, fatal incidents with the same, exactly the same substance in the UK, where there was no uh, drug checking service at that time, and where people were not informed about uh, this uh, uh, specific tablet on the market. And so, um, yeah, uh, we cleaned our streets, but, you know, when there's no drug checking services everywhere in, in, in Europe, in the European Union, we basically put the, the problems on the on the streets of uh, neighboring countries. And this is what happened in the UK, you know, preventable death. Mm -hmm. yeah, of course. I mean, um, by the way, great work, guys. Um, I mean, it's really it's really cool that, uh, you know, you identified the problem and you went uh, full on national uh, with all the possible channels that you had, you know, and, and and you told people what's going on. And once, you know, the public is informed, just like if you have a, I don't know, viral epidemic or so on, and people just know what's going on, um, they, they can uh, behave accordingly. But of course, just as you said, if, uh, you, you know, if, if you are the only country, then of course, the whoever is selling it, they will just move on to another market. And since they don't have those same systems in place as you have, um, you know, people first will die and then the actions are being taken. So it's a sad statement, but it's true, you know, and um, first people have to die before things would actually change. And on top of that, you know, I'm not, we're not very proud of that, but we are the number one producer of, of both ecstasy and amphetamine mm -hmm. world speed. And so what, what, what happened probably in this case was that a huge amount of uh, tablets were already pressed. They were ready for consumption, so to speak. Then the selling of this uh, substance interfered somehow with uh, uh, our message, you know, so it became insellable. But it was still there and it needs to be sold because these vendors, they need to sell, you know, the, the substance. So they just put it on a plate of another, on another country. And this is what happened. Yeah, of course. Um Need to you need to make your profits, right? I mean, if you invest, it's uh, I mean, it's, after all, you know, like any other product, it's still a business. So, but the strange thing is that why would you want to uh, produce a substance anyway, which is absolutely lethal? You know, we don't know. Probably it was a mistake or an amateur, something like that. But we don't really know. It's really strange. So uh, most likely. But yeah, this is a, probably an example of how it uh, how it was effective in our country. And, uh, sadly, uh, less effective uh, in others.
So when we talk about quality of drugs, um, would you say that there are specific countries, uh, because not all drugs, of course, you know, are produced domestically. So are there specific countries where you know that whatever comes from there is by definition of a lesser quality and people should really, really be careful? Or do you say it doesn't really matter? It's more like who is producing it and that varies. Yeah, you know, the, before a product ends up in the streets, it has gone through a lot of different hands, you know. Uh, when it comes to ecstasy, the, the source is the Netherlands. And so this is also what we see, actually, is that the quality, well, quality in terms of purity, for instance, and uh, and adulterations of ecstasy has never been uh, so high as, as at the moment. You know, the ecstasy usually uh, contains only MDMA and nothing else. No adulterations uh, at the moment, and it's really very, very, very strong. But when a product comes from far away, let's say cocaine, coming basically from South America, you see that uh, along the way to Europe or to America, it goes through a lot of hands, and these hands, they want to make some profit as well. And so it gets adulterated, uh, you know, by the kilometer almost. And um, But there's no countries I could think of that usually have very bad quality drugs, no. Now, uh, maybe from, from your experience, um, you know, all, through all those years that, you, um, that you're in this field and also, you know, talking to a, and a great amount of people who are also users, um, what would you say, what is basically the, what are the three most used drugs? Um, and do they have a specific population or part of population which is rather to take it um, than the others? Um, when it comes to the Netherlands, uh, the most used um, illicit substance, except from cannabis, uh, would be uh, ecstasy. Uh, around 60% or even more of all the samples we see on a, on a daily and weekly and a yearly basis concerns uh, ecstasy, usually pills, but also powders. Uh, typical public would be young people experimenting with, uh, with, uh, with ecstasy, going out to parties, having a good time and so on. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to get addicted to, uh, to MDMA, to ecstasy. Mm -hmm. So it's usually uh, uh, what we see. Uh, so it's ecstasy. Second place would probably be cocaine. Same group of people, or probably a bit older because ex uh, cocaine is a bit more expensive than, uh, than ecstasy. Mm -hmm. Well, a bit more. It's 10 times more expensive per gram. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so you need some <laughs> money. But, uh, you know, so these are, these are still the same population. Uh, but then a bit older, uh, they work usually or the, mm -hmm. the, the late phases of their uh, university time, something like that. Uh, that's the second one. And the third one would probably be amphetamines, I guess, uh, also in the same range. So all of these three are stimulant drugs that, uh, that people would take uh, just to have a good time. So uh, it also uh, makes clear that those people who submit samples to us, the people that we see, are uh, people using drugs uh, at a recreational basis. Heroin, for instance, we hardly see because we believe that you know heroin easily leads to addiction. And when you're addicted to heroin, it's very difficult for you to even give away a few traces of the powder because you're addicted and you think you need everything. So we see party drugs, you know, club drugs. This is what the most thing that we see. Uh, club drugs used by people who 
frequently go out to parties. Okay. Um, what about from? So these are basically the most user, the ones that you see a lot. Um, you name three, which are not so addictive, and and you know, I would say by the effects, it rather pushes you. You know, um, sort of gives you a good, good, good feeling about yourself. Maybe a, a certain more of a uh, how should we call it? Um, empathetic connection to to uh, to other people. You know, since they are used at parties. If we, for example, go to a different direction and um, and talk about the LSD and uh, psilocybin, you know, mushrooms, and this is probably a different uh, different uh, part of the population which would experiment with these kind of drugs. And I mean, nowadays they are even sometimes used in in uh, therapy sessions. You know, if somebody has a deep trauma and so on. So, do you have maybe some information about that? Yes, but before I come to that, I have to correct you uh, yeah. a bit because, you know, uh, L- uh, cocaine and also speed, they, you know, you can get quite easily addicted to those substances. However, the people that we see, the people that visit our services are highly educated. They have work, they have jobs, and uh, their uh, drug use has not been uh, so heavily that they cannot function any longer. But Principally, they are, you know, cocaine and, and speed, they are, you can get, you really can get addicted to that. So that's one thing. The other one about this, uh, these, these hallucinogenic drugs, yes, we see an increase over the years in LSD, um, 2CB is another one. Um, we do not test uh, mushrooms, uh, so we don't see that any longer. But uh, it's a different group. It's, it's the same, but it's different. You know, ketamine is also in that range. Mm-hmm. Um We call those people uh, psychonauts, um, people who, well, like to experiment with these types of drugs. It's quite often done at a home setting because, you know, you do not want to be in a a trip uh, when you're around thousands of people with uh, heavy music and and flashy lights and all that stuff. So you'd like to control that. Uh, It's a different group. And we have seen over the years that the number of people submitting LSD, uh, ketamine, 2CB, uh, and some of these new uh, uh, psychedelic drugs uh, is increasing. It's a different kind of, uh, of people. It's usually a bit older as well, uh, but they are well, very well experienced uh, uh, users. Well, thank you for correcting me, by the way. You also mentioned in the talk before uh, the podcast that uh, you would like to talk about the problematic of uh, selling drugs or buying drugs on uh, online, right? Um, and you also mentioned uh, the dark net, I mean, I have no idea, so you have to tell us, you know, you have to bring us into this world. I mean, what's going on there? Oh, really? Um, yeah. You know, since we're doing this very specific work, for me, it's, you know, the, the usual job to go online on the dark net and to look what's happening there. But yeah, for a layman, it's probably something very new. Um, you know, the, the dark net or the internet uh, in general is a great good, you know, look what we can do with the internet. It's, it's, it's becoming very, uh, uh, the impact of the internet is very strong in our daily life. We use internet all the time. So it's a good thing. But alongside with that, it also makes possible uh, um, uh, that uh, the drug market itself, they used to be in the streets and so on. Uh, now, a part of that market is, is off the streets and it's online. It's online in clean and web shops. So it's like, you know, Google invest, index. Uh, sites where you can buy specific substances. It's on Fora where you can buy it. It's on social media like WhatsApp and the Telegram where you can buy uh, all these drugs. They are being offered widely. 
and it's on the darknet, and the darknet is a specific uh, uh, part of the internet, the biggest part of the internet, almost 90%, probably we think, is the darknet, um, where uh, you need to have, uh, uh, you have to use specific browsers to increase your anonymity and, and so on and so on. So when you're in the darknet, uh, you are more free to do whatever you want than you're, when you're on the clear net. It's difficult, much more difficult for police to track you, which makes it interesting uh, for both uh, users or buyers of drugs and sellers. So over the years, we have seen an increase in uh, places where, on the darknet, uh, where users turn to and vendors turn to to um, well to buy and sell drugs these markets are called darknet markets or crypto markets there's a the number is changing all the time because now police is also very active to uh, block them but we believe that where there's a demand uh, the supply will follow so it will take maybe one week or two and then another market pops up. But anyway, the system is, uh, you know, it's really revolutionary uh, compared to the street markets. And um, what I usually say is that drug markets have changed enormously over the, the, the last 20 years in two ways. One is the emergence of new drugs on the market. So drugs that simulate existing drugs like cocaine and, and speed and ecstasy. They are different in the molecular, molecular structure um, uh, and they are being offered widely on the darknet and on the internet. And the second big uh, change is internet as a source of buying and selling drugs. So what we are doing now is to looking deeper into this darknet area and the social media to find out what's going on there. And for a user, you know, for a buyer of drugs, the difference, the, one of the big differences between street level uh, markets and internet markets is that on at street you're nobody when you buy something from a dealer you know you have no nothing you know you just buy it and then you have to see what happens you know it's better mm-hmm. there's nowhere to turn to on the internet it's a different story you buy something and then especially these darknet markets they have escrow so you buy not you sell you give your money not directly to the vendor but it stays somewhere on the platform on which the uh, drugs are being offered. What happens is that you buy something and then uh, the vendor will set, uh, send it to you through mail, usually. And upon receiving uh, the, the substance, uh, as a buyer, you have to fill out a form before the deal is closed. You fill out a form stating, I am satisfied with my, uh, uh, with my uh, substance, with, with, the, with the substance I sold. I'm not satisfied, I didn't receive it all, and so on. So you have to rate the vendor. The vendor, it's completely different from the street level. You know, there was no way to rate the vendor. You know, you had your money was gone, and if you had no, uh, if it was bad quality, well, bad luck. On the internet, it's a different story. So now we say that on the internet, the, the client is king. The one buying is king because nobody wants bad reviews of the product they sell because when they get a number of bad reviews, uh, possible buyers, they will just turn somewhere else. You know, They click on another site or another vendor uh, who has better reviews and then they buy it from their, uh, from their end. So it's a huge difference, you know, it's, um, and this, this has changed, this, this is changing the drug markets completely at the moment. 
So well, what you're essentially telling me uh, very much uh, sounds like uh, I don't know buying any other goods on Amazon. Um, you know, just instead of books, I would basically buy um, ecstasy, and then um, you know, just like in Yelp, I would write a review about what I got. So it's uh, yeah, that it's very different to what it what it used to be, right? <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. It doesn't really matter when you buy a trip somewhere or you know you book a hotel. You look at the reviews. The same with drugs. In that sense, it's a democratic thing, you know. Um, regardless of the fact that whether it's a good thing to use drugs, but if you want to use drugs and you buy drugs, well, probably the internet is a, is a, for many users a better place to go to than um, uh, than you go in the streets because in the streets there's nothing you can do when you have bad quality. And what we have done over the years is to to look because we have this unique system. I explained you a, a little bit about. We compared drugs sold online with those sold uh, offline in terms of purity, adulterations and prices. And uh, although the results were um, not really uh, sensational because you know we live in a very specific country, the results were like this. Uh, purity and adulterations were more or less the same. So not, no significantly, significantly, statistically significant uh, differences between offline and online. However, the prices of six out of 10 uh, substances online were higher than offline, uh, but it was on the Dutch market. You know, the prices in our country for drugs are usually quite low compared to to basically all other countries. You know, if the tablet of of ecstasy in our country, probably it will cost somewhere between three and five euros. In Australia, I know it's around twenty five uh, Australian dollars, which is a lot more. So, uh, but even so, uh, you know, so if there's no big changes in the Netherlands with online and offline, still people do that. So you might imagine that in countries with a more restrictive policy where uh, purity in the streets is much lower, people would actually turn to the internet to buy to buy the drugs. So it makes sense. And so since this is the situation, uh, it will never disappear. You know, And now we have this cat and mouse game between uh, uh, law enforcement and users and vendors and so on, because they are very keen now on on blocking these these markets, which makes sense, obviously. Um, however, you know, we see that uh, once you block one side, another one pops up. And uh, I just get back to this something I told you earlier on, is that there is a demand for drugs. There is a demand for drugs, and regardless what you do, uh, the, the the supply will follow because it's a very profitable market. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, you know, all these things remind me of the um, American story with the prohibition time. Um, I mean, they made the laws and, you know, the, the police were looking everywhere. And still, I mean, people got really creative. Uh, the, the the Italian mafia back in the days, they got really creative. They came up with, with amazing ideas how to get alcohol into the country. So where there is, a, as you say, where there is demand, people will find a way to sell. So Exactly. And so this is why we focus on demand rather than on uh, on supply, based on the fact that we know that people will use drugs anyway. Some people will use drugs anyway and in a specific period of their life. And then we still believe that it's the best way to to deal with that is to uh, to give them the best possible information. And we also say that, you know, measuring is knowing because people talk about the dark net and about drug use all the time, that it has increased here and there and so on. But what we're trying to do 
uh, with many monitors, but also with the drug uh, drug checking, is to come up with the facts. How many people use drugs anyway? And uh, what we do, for instance, with these new drugs that we haven't really touched upon, is that many people talk about, you know, these new drugs are entering the market and they're causing all kinds of problems and so on and so on. Through our uh, monitoring service, we see that there is a demand for these new drugs, but it's still small. And uh, we monitor these drugs almost for, I don't know, 15 or more years, but we still see that the actual demand for these drugs, with the exception of one, uh, has been really, really low uh, in our country. And so, uh, on based on that fact, we can basically develop all kinds of, of policies based on facts rather than on morals. I understand that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always good to have, uh, you know, to have um, actual data and, you know, work with that to know what is really going on. Um, you mentioned also that you had a project going on or maybe still is going on in Central Asia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this project is called CADAP. It's Central Asian Drug Action Program. It runs really for many years already. I think we started off in 2001 already. Um, now we are discussing the seventh phase of this project. It's usually three or four years. Um, the aim of this project is that we uh, share best, best practice from the EU in terms of drugs, uh, meaning um, drug policy, uh, monitoring drugs, uh, treatment and prevention. Uh, with our colleagues in Central Asia, more specifically in five countries, which are uh, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Kyrgyzstan. These five mm -hmm. countries, they are involved in our projects. Uh, what we do is to share in the best practice from our uh, area with, uh, with, uh, with their best practice, because they also have best practice. And talking about these new drugs, you know, they are very, you know, they are very interested in these new drugs and they believe, some of, in some countries, there's a belief that every second person is using these new drugs. But, you know, when then, when you ask, how would you know, they have really no answer, you know, they, they, they read in the newspaper, but it's based on ideas and morals, but not on facts. So what we are supporting there in this specific work stream is monitoring how you know, we educate people to monitor drug use in a society in the best possible way, uh, linked to what we know in the European Union already. And it's really uh, a, a very successful project. You know, it's a huge territory. Problems are quite different, but also very similar. And so we believe that's very good to 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 travel there. You know, every now and then, just to uh, share our ideas and experiences. Yeah. Well, the one thing which I didn't really understand is what caused this belief that every second person would be somehow, you know, um, a uh, um, a user of of these new drugs. Um, you know, it's not similar. It's not that different from from European Union. You know, media, some media at least, uh, they write all kinds of. Uh, things, you know, journalists, some journalists write all kinds of things without looking at the facts. You know, today and yesterday I was in the media in the Netherlands about uh, about uh, specific substances and it's usually uh, in a way, written in a way which is, you know, it's scaring people and it's it's not based on facts. It was about fentanyl, it was, it was about methamphetamine use in our country and, you know, we, we see and we believe that the use of those substances in our country, the illicit use of those substances is still uh, limited, but 
you know, if you look at the media, how they uh, cover these issues, it looks like, you know, the same thing, more or less. So we try to uh, to work with them in Central Asia based on the, the experiences that we have and how you could come across those uh, those those opinions and those very bad written uh, uh, items in the news. So it's not that different, you know, it's different, but it's not that different. Uh, we, we we also what we always say is that measuring is knowing. Before you know something, you have to measure what actually is going on because people have all kinds of ideas about those drugs coming from outside in your country and they're causing all kinds of misery. But quite often, the reality is a bit different. Oh yeah, now I understand what you mean. And this is actually a good topic, which uh, I, I'd like your opinion about this. Why is why is well? First of all, the term drug is already I would say you know very. The valence of the of the term is already super negative. I mean, when when it, whenever you hear it in some kind of context, it's never positive. And um, the second thing is, why do you think is is uh, substance use such a polarizing topic in the in the societies? Um, whereas, for example, alcohol, um, you know, having also severe severe uh, damaging effects to to humans body and mind is usually not that um, um, criminalized and, and uh, demonized. Yeah. Okay, I'll get to the second uh, question a, a bit later. I would start off with uh, the first one about you know, the, 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 the meaning of, of this word drug. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, in the Netherlands and in some other countries, we have this heroin assistant program. So what is done is that for uh, a few people, really a few, uh, they have to fulfill a huge amount of criteria be- before they can enter this treatment. But when they do, they get pharmaceutically clean uh, and pure heroin uh, every day. Uh, so heroin users getting heroin every day. One who's against these, uh, these, this, this kind of treatment, and many are, they talk about, you know, you're the state is a drug dealer and, you know, you're, you're keeping people addicted and so on and so on. However, when you talk to those people, and I have done that quite a, quite a bit, uh, to, to those people who are actually in treatment, they don't call heroin a treatment, a drug. No, it's their, it's a medicine. It's their medicine. They are in need of heroin because they are addicted to heroin, and they need heroin, and it's not being used as a drug at all. It's being used uh, as a medicine. So this is how, how we can put these things into context. Um, and yes, you know about you know ex- about the, the the term drugs related to alcohol. It's you know drugs is negative, alcohol is positive. It has to do also in our society in the Netherlands that you know I think around ninety percent of all the people in our country from age fifteen to sixty four uses uh, alcohol regularly. But you know they don't want to be associated with you know they they don't see themselves as drug users. No, they are alcohol users because it's done recreational and so on. Whereas you know if you look at the effects, drug alcohol along with tobacco are the most dangerous substance at all. You know they cause much more death every year uh, than all those illicit drugs together. You know to give you an idea, uh, I think around twenty thousand people every year die directly because of tobacco use and I think 2,000 or so because of uh, alcohol uh, abuse. If you look at the numbers for, of drugs, you know, heroin, cocaine, we do not uh, get above the 200, 250, 300 maybe. It's not to, uh, to make those things differently, but it's to put those things into perspective. Alcohol 
it's, everyone says, well, it's good to drink alcohol, no problem, but it still causes much more uh, problems uh, and deaths than any drug. But if you would say, well, I use heroin on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, you know, just to relax, people would, you know, they would consider you less than a human being. Uh, and so it has a very cultural background, you know, for many, many years, and it needs a lot of work to, to change that perspective. Alcohol, tobacco, and heroin are basically the same substances, and people use that for whatever reason they use that. You know, many all people they need from time to time something to to lift their minds. You know, whether it's heroin, cocaine, or alcohol, or jogging, or whatever. You know, and this is the basic thing. But it has been polarized. You know, as you as you have said, uh, if you would say I'm a regular user of cocaine, people would look at you in a completely different way. If, if then if you would say I will drink alcohol in a regular way because the latter one is accepted the first one not at all yeah it's I, I really believe what you said is uh, first of all there is a huge um, historical uh, you know um, um, part in this playing a role of like how how things developed over over the past uh, years and then the second thing is also the the, um, the social connotation so with alcohol because everybody does it or well you know 99% of people drink and uh, it's okay, then then there is no stigma, there is no, you know, there is not a problem. But as soon as you have a smaller portion of the population somehow using some kind of stop substance, and by the way, I think it's also important to mention that the majority of people do not know much about the substances to begin with. I mean, we are not all educated. We don't know what that, you know, what what these things are made of chemically. We don't know how they really work. Um, we don't understand the biochemistry of the brain, and and so there are these negative connotations. And usually, people really are, um, you know, either completely restrictive or they they just really, as you mentioned, look at you as a sort of a lost existence. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, this is. Well, we try to not to change, but we look at things uh, based on the evidence, you know, uh, and we look we have gathered a lot of information about alcohol abuse, alcohol misuse, the, the, the risk of alcohol use. We do the same for, for cocaine and for ecstasy. Um, however, you know, people tend to believe, you know, tend to turn away when you say that alcohol is a bad thing to use because it would, if you would say, well, we're going to ban alcohol in our society, then it would be a big, you know, social revolt in our country, I'm sure. This is why it never uh, has been touched upon. But if you strictly look at the risks of specific drugs, the worst drugs you could take are tobacco in the first place, and secondly, alcohol. And then very far away from those drugs, you come with cannabis and, and other drugs. So, yeah. so these are the facts. You know? Dan, thank you so much for taking your time discussing all these things with me. I found, I found very, very interesting and I am, I believe our listeners will as well. And um, I would like to close up uh, our session with, uh, um, I would say, a, an advice for everybody. Don't take drugs, but if you do, let them be checked so you know what you're taking. I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much, Mikhail. This was the Voice of Medicine. Make sure you tune in next time and take care. <laughs>